0: I'm Tom Keane with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. classic book, an immediate classic in September of 1999. Catherine Mann's Is a Trade Deficit Sustainable? Change the Dialogue on International Economics and Trade. Dr. Mann joins us now from our studios in Washington. She is the Chief Economist for the OECD in Paris. Catherine, it seems like we've come so far from your cl- classic book. Yeah. Help us now with the border tax. Peter Navarro right. suggests it can work for America. Noël Rubini with a spirited defense of not doing the border tax.
1: Which should it be? So I think when we look at the border tax, we have to remember that when you put on an import surcharge, it cascades through the supply chain and ends up being an export tax. And so whatever you think that you're going to be doing, the implication for exports is going to be greater uh, in terms of creating a cost for exports than, than perhaps you're aware of. And The additional aspect about the border tax is a lot of discussion about whether or not the dollar will uh, adjust and, and wipe all, uh, out the whole effect, and the answer there again is not very likely uh, because it's like which dollar? Is it the dollar against the peso? It's, is it the dollar against the euro? And so um, it's too facile to say, oh well the dollar will adjust. So it's going to end up being more costly, it's going to end up being costly to exports, and in the end uh, it will not achieve the objective that, uh, the, uh, that they have in mind.
0: The singular distinction here, Dr. Mann, is model building. Dr. Navarro works with simplistic, bilateral, static mm-hmm. models. Professor Rubini and Kruger, formerly with the IMF, and Kruger, among others, noticing a modern process system of industry which leads to complexity. Is the Navarro Trump model just dated and too simple?
1: Well, we've never believed that looking at bilateral trade deficits was, was what you should be examining when understanding the impact of trade on a country. Uh, it's the overall deficit that is uh, an issue, or maybe not an issue, but certainly not on a bilateral basis. And again, sort of a, a, a blanket border tax adjustment is going to have a much more negative effect on exports than than you would think. Uh, we do some calculations that suggest that a 10% uh, import tax would actually cause a 15% decline in U.S. exports. So it's a more than one-to-one uh, cost for for the exporters. And, and again, that's not the objective of the tax.
0: Tell me here, Lord King, if you would, the differential between border dynamics of a large exporting country like Germany, the struggles of the United Kingdom in Brexit, and the oddity of a dominant American system. These are all unique trading nations aren't they you can't use one analysis
2: I I think that's right but I also think that we should recognize that over a long period of time we've all benefited from the opportunity to trade with each other after all why would we want to put impediments in place to stop individuals and businesses trading with each other across borders we don't do it within borders we shouldn't necessarily do it across borders And I think that, you know, Catherine's right, that there are real costs here to interfering with the natural way in which trade would otherwise operate. I think the initial proposal for a tax reform had some merit behind it. But I think what's very unfortunate is to combine a proposal for corporate tax reform (coughs) with a quite separate proposal for the border tax adjustment. And I think that is a, a separate issue altogether. One of the big challenges, I think, in the modern world is to see how far we, as large countries, are prepared to subject ourselves to rules of the game, which we would like to impose on other countries, but in return, to get them for accepting it, we need to impose it on ourselves. And I think this is where the issue of the border tax is likely to end up with a rather unfortunate argument in the World Trade Organization.
3: Um, Dr. Mann, in your OECD forecast released today, you say the global economy may not be strong enough to withstand risks from increased trade barriers, but you also talk about the overblown stock market and potential mm-hmm. currency volatility. So you're raising yeah. forecasts, but you're warning of the risks. If it goes badly wrong, do we risk seeing a recession? Or because you're looking at 2 to 3% growth, we, um, we can't fall in a recession?
1: So I think what we're, what we're talking about is we've got an improvement in growth, 3.6 by 2018 for the global economy, but um, that's really flying very low. And when you're flying low and you get a downdraft from the financial system through a couple of different channels, um, or through uh, changes in expectations for trade, coming through the trade channel, you can wipe away all of that gains that we have in, in growth over that time period. So. Um, we're not talking a recession, but we are talking about a continuation, potentially a continuation of the low growth trap that we've had in the last five years. And we've seen the consequences of that, both economically in terms of rising inequality, but also politically in terms of uh, you know, disruption and populism. So um, when you're flying low, you don't want to you know, take a chance on downdrafts, especially when but they're so- self-inflicted.
3: But so, Lord King, this goes back to the fact that if you, if you want everyone to play by the rules and you can't expect other people to play by the rules that you don't play by, so it would mean that some kind of, you know, if we do have increased protectionism, which actually solidifies and crystallizes, the swi- there would be a pretty swift response to it.
2: Yes, and I think the I mean, Catherine's right to point to the concern that we should all have about continuing slow growth. Okay. So before the financial crisis, the world economy grew by more than 4%, more often than not, since the immediate bounce back from the crisis in 2009-10, mm. the world economy has not grown above 4% in any single year, and no one is forecasting that it will in the next few years. So this is a period of uh, un- you know, slow growth, which is below our ability to grow. And we could grow faster, and we will need to do so if we're going to be able to employ all the resources that are available.
0: This is wonderful. Let's continue this conversation. Dr. Mann, I think of Jacob Viner, 1946, power versus plenty. Are we simply rationalizing a new neo-mercantilism? Are we dealing with a zero-sum mercantile society of power versus plenty?
1: So there's no zero-sum here. I think that's one of the things that we have to... Remember that trade is not a zero-sum exercise. Trade expands the pie. What we haven't done is deal with the fact that distribution of the pie has been unequal, and we've ignored that for a long period of time. We've been able, or we've like rationalized ignoring it because the pie was growing rapidly prior to the financial crisis. Since then, you know, the pie hasn't grown so fast. The distributional consequences have become much, much clearer. And so we have to get on board with doing the right things on the domestic side. It means that trade policy is complemented by a whole range of domestic policies that we've chosen not to do. And in fact, to the extent that we have taken away uh, fiscal mechanisms for redistribution over the last four years, we have made the distribution situation worse.
0: Help me here, Lord King, with the place of the United Kingdom in this new debate of power versus plenty. How does the nation of the East India Trading Company, how do they establish a place within the new power of Trump politics versus the plenty we all desire?
2: Well, the United Kingdom is the fifth biggest economy in the world, so it's, it's got plenty uh, of size and weight in the world economy. But I think what we've seen in recent years is that having plenty, that is being a large economy, doesn't necessarily give you the power that you would want. We're all in this together and China, for example, that everyone thought was an economy growing at uh, extraordinary rates that would just continue, could not maintain its its growth rate because of lack of demand from the rest of the world. Unless we find a way to get out of our problems through some sort of cooperation, to rebalance our economies together, then I suspect that we're going to see a continuation of slow growth. For the United Kingdom, what that means is that we need to accept the fall in sterling as a necessary part of the readjustment of the British economy and then see resources move (coughs) from consumption to exports and investment.
3: So, Dr. Mann, given what Mervyn King has just said, do you see the possibility of some kind of plaza Accord or a way of all nations to come together to find an agreement where everyone benefits, or will it be a race to who fixes productivity first? That means they'll be on top.
1: Well, the race to fix... I mean, we can, we can work this out together. We know that productivity is enhanced by trade. We also know that productivity is enhanced by investment. And both of those can be facilitated by the right sort of fiscal uh, policies, where we're talking about both taxes and transfers, as well as the structural elements that are associated with that. Now, one of the things that we can do collectively, in addition to following trade policies that make sense for everyone, is to engage in collective fiscal actions. And again, we're not necessarily talking about spending on roads and bridges. Some countries need to spend more on education, as indeed Philip Hammond is doing in the case of the UK, and some countries need to spend more on R&D. So these are um, ways in which each country follows its own path, appropriate to its own situation, on the fiscal side, but it becomes a collective action each country benefits more because they do it together and so following through on open trade policies following through on collective fiscal policies is a strategy to get us back to that four percent or more growth rate which will allow productivity enhancements to increase and will uh, allow us to redistribute better as well dr
0: mann thank you so much for joining us in this spirited conversation Catherine mann of brandeis and of course of the oecd uh, in paris
4: Well, it's a great pleasure now to welcome from our bureau in London, Lord Mervyn King, governor of the Bank of England from 2003 to 2013, and the author of The End of Alchemy, Money, Banking, and the Future of the Global Economy. I had occasion to talk to him when the book was first published uh, in hardcover. Lord King, it's wonderful to speak with you again on this day that it's out uh, in paperback, and, and fair to say uh, the world looks a lot different than it did in, in early March well, when we last spoke.
2: In some ways it does, uh, and good morning to you all. Uh, It it looks different in terms of Brexit and the election of President Trump. It doesn't actually look very different in terms of the outlook for the world economy.
4: Tell me a bit about how how you went about revising this in in light of that. The book has a new preface here. Uh, Just begin to tell me how you've begun to process all that's happened with that Brexit vote in the aftermath.
2: Well, the first thing I point out in the new preface is that actually the main themes I drew out in the book are still holding today, that is, we are still concerned about the fate of the financial sector and whether we have the right kind of regulation of the banking system. Uh, And secondly, we are still concerned, as the OECD points out in its report this morning, that the world economy is growing more slowly than it should. And these are the big underlying problems that we face. Of course, since then, when the book came out, the political concern has focused very much towards both Brexit in Europe and the election of President Trump in the United States. But I'm not sure whether these are the major issues that are likely to affect the evolution of our economies over the next few years. I think there's a great deal of political excitement, but a lot less in terms of economic substance.
4: Let's talk a bit about the the budget. You expect a budget tomorrow from from the chancellor there uh, in London. How much of the the government's collective psychic space is consumed with Brexit right now? You have a government here that's trying to do a a lot more in terms of social programs and and, and the like, uh, all the while pushing forward toward the the triggering of of Article 50. Uh, How much psychic space is that taking up?
2: Well, I think it's a very good phrase, actually, psychic space, and it's taking up almost all the energy of all our political parties here, I think, to the detriment of discussion about the longer-run economic challenges facing the UK. I think the impact of Brexit on our economic fortunes has been exaggerated and I think that the issues involved have also been misinterpreted in terms of being primarily about a complex negotiation as opposed to the UK taking decisions that result from the referendum in terms of saying we are going to leave the European Union. So I think you're right that the, the psychic space has been dominated by Brexit and the political ramifications of it, after all, it led to the resignation of a prime minister, Hmm. the attempt to de-seat the leader of the opposition, Uh, two other political leaders went. It's dominated politics, but it shouldn't dominate the discussion of the economic outlook for the UK.
4: I, I look at the debate that's been going on in the UK since that vote, and it seems more robust. Uh, perhaps healthier than it was going into the vote itself. Is that because it's just not time limited? Uh, Would you agree that my observation is is accurate, that it seems like the debate over the future of of the UK's role uh, in the European Union, with the European Union, uh, has taken on a different
2: shape since that vote took place? I think that's true. I I think a lot of people during the referendum campaign on both sides were exaggerating the immediate implications of a vote to leave, and obviously what we've seen since is almost no impact at all. Uh, And the two reasons for that. One is that in the short run, nothing really has happened. We're still in the European Union. There's no change to our trading arrangements. So it would have been peculiar, I think, if we'd seen any significant short run impact. But the second observation I'd make is that it's not at all obvious to me that the long run impact of Brexit will be anything like as severe as some people have been arguing again on either side. It's not going to be uh, the restoration of UK's economic fortunes, nor is it going to be the end of the world for the UK economy. People want to trade with each other, and they will carry on doing that.
4: Lord King, how surprised have you been by uh, the economic reaction to that vote uh, from last summer? Did, did you think uh, at the time that the consequences could be more severe than they have played out to be?
2: Uh, no, and, and I think that uh, during the campaign, uh, that some of those people who argued that we should vote to stay in threatened the rest of us with the, um, the words that if we were to vote to leave, then we would see higher interest rates, a lower level for sterling, lower house prices. And frankly, my reaction was that's exactly what the policy authorities have been trying to achieve for the past three years. uh, And the British people managed to achieve it in one day, whereas the authorities had failed to achieve it. Britain needed a lower level for sterling, given the size of its current account deficit. We needed to rebalance our economy by getting back to a more normal level of interest rates, and we needed to do something to take out the upward pressure on house prices. Now, if Brexit has led to that, then that's, so far, rather a good thing. But as I say, I don't think the long-run consequences of Brexit will be anything like as severe as many people are currently arguing. Help us here in the U.S. understand the role of the
4: the House of Lords in all of this. Uh, We saw the rejection of uh, what Theresa May put forward, the Prime Minister put forward a couple of days uh, ago. What role is the House of Lords playing here uh, in this process?
2: Well, after the Supreme Court ruling in January, which meant that in order to invoke Article 50, Parliament had to uh, vote for that a motion to invoke Article 50, that has to be supported both by the Commons and the Lords. Uh, And the Commons have voted very clearly to invoke Article 50 and a simple piece of legislation. Some members of the House of Lords wanted to attach amendments to that to limit uh, the conditions under which the Prime Minister could make that invocation. Um, Now if if the House of Lords continues to do that, then it could actually defer the ability of the government to invoke Article 50 by a year. But my expectation would be that when we get in another week or so to the final stages in which the Commons and House of Lords iterate between themselves, <laughs> then actually the Labour Party and the House of Lords mm-hmm. may well back down and decide that actually it will make more sense to support the uh, motions coming out of the House of Commons and the House of Lords would then end up supporting it. The government could then invoke Article 50. Failing that, I think there could be quite a serious political fallout, both for the House of Lords and also for the opposition.
0: Uh, Mervyn King with us for a few more minutes here this morning. Lord King, uh, we have been advantaged by the perspective of Lord Desai of the London School of Economics. He's written a book, Hubris, on humility. And what is needed after a great financial crisis? You lived the financial crisis. I think of Northern Rock and your acclaimed speech in Scotland of, of years ago. Are we humble enough now, or are we already back to the giddiness, forgetting the lessons learned of two thousand eight
2: and nine? Well, I think in one dimension we need a little more humility, which is that the economics profession. Thought that it had solved the problems of macroeconomic management, and I think we saw from the results of the financial crisis that we had not, that we did experience a very significant downturn in the world economy, which has persisted, and we haven't got back to normal rates of growth. So I think we do need a little more humility in thinking through whether or not we actually understand how the world economy operates. And part of my book is to explain what we need to do to put those, that, that way of thinking right. And I think there are lessons there for central banks and other economic commentators whose conventional models not only failed to help us understand the nature of the financial crisis, but actually have failed to uh, explain and predict the slow growth rates that we've seen since.
4: Very quickly here, and I know you've survived an hour with Tom Keene on, on TV. Thank you very much for being so generous with your time. We, we have a debate here in the U.S. about the future of the Fed Reserve. We're going to see a lot of personnel changes there. When you, when you look at the Fed, when you look at other central banks, uh, how much of an existential dilemma are they facing right now? It seems like ours is uh, going to face whether or not it has a Ph.D. economist versus bankers, et cetera. Uh, w- where are we in terms of, of central banks broadly?
2: So I think that the biggest threat to central banks is the expectation – that it should a be responsible for the fortunes of the economy when in fact it can have only a limited impact in the short run in boosting growth and secondly that it mustn't it's very important that central banks do not take upon themselves more responsibilities than they can in fact discharge and I was worried in recent years mm-hmm. that central banks had got themselves into the position of saying right. that we are the only game in well, town, and they're not.
0: We're going to have to leave it there, Lord King, um, so, so we could go on and on and on. <laughs> Great to speak with I you. can't say enough about the end of Alchemy. Look for it now out in paperback. The movie, Memorial Day 2019. <laughs> Joining us now from our Bloomberg 991 studios in Washington, Catherine Mann of the OECD. David, I was talking earlier uh, with Dr. Mann about trade. And I, I guess the simple uh, question uh, right now is where is trade growth in the world? When you sum it up at OECD, is there any recovery in trade?
4: Yeah, s- square that for me, if you would, Catherine Mann. We see the, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the populist uh, anger toward Uh, Lack of interest in multilateral trade deals. Where where are we seeing movement when it comes to trade?
1: Well, it's good to uh, be with all of you. Um, So we are we have uh, seen a rebound in trade growth. Uh, from a very, very low rate of growth in 2016, now the rebound actually doesn't take us very far back to what would have been a normal um, kind of pace of change. So um, it's it's broad based um, uh, throughout the global value chains. So I mean that's good news in the sense that that uh, growth in trade is it plays a very important role in in supporting productivity growth, uh, supporting open markets and uh, expanding opportunities for producers as well as varieties for consumers. So we do like to see that increase. But, um, you know, it's, it's uh, as I say, compared to where growth of trade was uh, prior to the financial crisis, uh, we're really not anywhere near back to that.
4: Uh, OECD is saying global growth is set to pick up modestly but remains uh, too slow. Uh, you write about making use of fiscal space. How much has the clarion call from the OECD changed when it comes to policy in terms of what you'd like to see governments do more of?
1: Well, I think we have seen a definite change in The uh, vocabulary in the sense that um, we see – what we've recommended when we talk about fiscal space is where's a window of opportunity provided by the uh, central banks, low interest rates, opportunity for sovereigns to borrow at very low interest rates, in some cases, of course, negative interest rates. And so for all of the – you know what the governments need to do. Uh, this is an opportune time to do the financing for it. Uh, but when we talk about what governments should do, there has been a tendency to focus uh, on the on the vocabulary of hard infrastructure, the roads and bridges, and certainly that's the right thing to do for some countries, but. Uh, for other countries, the focus is on soft infrastructure. And these are things related to childcare, uh, R&D tax credits, uh, and things that we would normally call structural. Uh, and they've fallen into vocabulary of structural. Now, what we've done is advocate when governments think about what they're doing is to marry fiscal and structural because they are part of the same package. And so doing the right thing appropriate for your economy when it's a combination of demand side and a supply side. The structural uh, features are... Supply-side um, emphasis. This is something that provides a boost in the short run and improvement in the economy's capacity to grow in the longer term. So when we change that vocabulary, mm. governments that perhaps aren't necessarily interested in deficit financing, they change the way they think about it and say, "Well, if we're talking about supply side, well, maybe maybe we'll do that. Maybe we'll do that."
4: You mentioned window of, of possibility, and I think of uh, economists like <laughs> yourself in a in a dark room, sort of trying to find your way around, trying to find that. Uh, window when it comes to what fiscal policy is going to look like. How difficult is it to forecast uh, right now? Say in the U.S. when it comes to, to thinking about what the contours of a fiscal package might look like.
1: Well, in terms of what we've incorporated into our projections, uh, we've been working with the blueprint uh, and then looking at how that changes, uh, you know, with the, with some of the political dynamics. So you know we've changed some of the timing of um, the uh, implications for some of the infrastructure suggestions and some of the tax suggestions uh, into uh, further off into 2018 uh, in comparison to our November outlook. So the timing, of course, is a question mark. Uh, actually, what is going to be implemented uh, is also a question mark, but. What I think what we've shown in our um, in our projections is the important role that fiscal initiatives can play in driving an improvement in the overall economic outlook for the global economy. We've also shown the extent to which Europe uh, has not really gotten on board with this uh, potential use of fiscal space. There is more room in f- in, of fiscal space in Europe than uh, than many of the governments there think. Uh, we have pointed out which governments can move uh, a little bit more in the direction of doing um, you know, fiscal initiatives, as I say, this marriage of sort of traditional fiscal spending, but then focusing on the structural elements. And putting that together would uh, create an, an environment of more robust growth than even that we've uh, seen already. So uh, when we think about the possibilities for, for the uh, global economy, we see modest growth, but something that, that could be better right. if the government's got on board.
0: Thank you so much for your time today. I'm Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television. Catherine Mann of the OECD. I really can't say enough. It was a magic moment with Mervyn King and Catherine Mann earlier. David, a special guest.
4: Yeah, he was the governor of Vermont from 1991 to 2003, of course, ran for president, then went on to chair the Democratic National Committee. Now he's with Dentons. Howard Dean joins us now, former governor, uh, Dr. Howard Dean. It's great to have you here as we get uh, a look at the American Health Care Act, as Republicans are calling here, a new proposal here uh, to change the Affordable Care Act, uh, introducing a refundable age-based tax credit. Uh, the theory there to help it buy, help people buy insurance ends a requirement to have coverage and would eventually eliminate uh, many taxes used to fund the 2010 uh, law, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Governor Dean, let me ask you first for your reaction here. Is there anything in this uh, legislation that's palatable to you and your Democratic Party?
5: Oh, well, first of all, let me thank you guys for having me on. I listened to you on Sirius XM, and I think you're great. Oh, well, thank you, Thank you. About that, <laughs> I, I'm going to start. And I'm not even. I'm, I'm going to start running for anything. Go. I'm going to start crying.
0: Continue, David.
5: <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, um, this isn't. I don't think this is a great way to do this. Um, I, 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 I at the time was not a huge supporter of Obamacare because I think they got a lot of things wrong. Well, there is one thing I would do. I'd get rid of the individual mandate, which they did do, um, uh, because it, all that is is an aggravation. In theory, you need it for the insurance market, but in practice, we did most of the stuff in Obamacare about 20 years ago when I was governor. Mm. And um, in practice, we didn't have an individual mandate. you never passed them like that in Vermont or northern New England. Um, and the truth is, most people do the responsible thing without being told, and y- you can fix it so that uh, you, you don't have the problems in the insurance market that th- they thought were the were the problem. Uh the rest of it I think is pretty bad. Uh first of all there'd be 15 million less uh people with health insurance by the time 2020 rolls around because uh of they, what they've done to the Medicaid proportions. The Medicaid expansion is actually the most effective part of the health insurance system as it was when we in, uh, expanded our system in 1992. Uh that the refundable tax credit uh takes money from uh, the old and makes it easier for the young. Although the age relation actual age-related tables, I haven't really seen. The problem is, of course, they're ramming this through in the same way they complained about the Democrats ramming it through. They don't even have a CBO score on this, which is really pretty outrageous. I mean, it's just a blatant political move. It has nothing to do with economics because the CBO as the C- Congressional Budget Office hasn't, hasn't even said what this is going to cost us. Uh, so I, I think the whole thing is pretty bad from beginning to end. Uh, except for getting rid of the individual mandate, which I never thought was necessary in the first
4: place. I mentioned you're with Dentons now, and I imagine that part of your role there is working with businesses who are wondering what this regulatory environment looks like. What do you tell them about where we're uh, headed? What are businesses worried about? What are your clients asking you about? And do you think that we're going to see some sort of reconfiguration of the healthcare law?
5: Um, unfortunately, I, not to kind of reconsideration of the healthcare law we need. What we tell our businesses, um, our clients is, in general, and I want to—we well, look, we have an. This is the largest law firm in the world, so we have a huge healthcare team that stretches from Oakland to Beijing. Um, so I don't want to speak for everybody on the sure. Denton's healthcare team. Basically, what we tell, particularly our domestic clients, is you need to get into a system where fee-for-service medicine is gone is disappears. The real truth about healthcare care is you're never going to control the cost as long as the economic incentives, and economic incentives are incredibly powerful and they work. As long as the economic or incentives are to get people like me, a former physician, to spend to do you as know. much stuff as we can, we're gonna keep doing it. And that is why healthcare costs are going out of control because we all get paid for doing as many procedures you know. and keeping you as long as we can in the ICU. Let me
0: let me reset here, David, with with the idea that some of our audience may not know that Doctor Dean wandered out of Saint George's school and lost in Newport, <laughs> Rhode Island. Move far deep southwest to Yale University and then darken the door of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, which which was hugely prestigious, still is, but hugely prestigious at the time. This is a guy that's actually done medicine. What, What a novel idea. Where's the common ground, Dr. Dean, that you have with Dr. Paul? I mean, you're both doctors. Where's the common ground for physicians and nurses in this debate?
5: Uh, I don't know that there is any. Um, although I don't, you know, I, I know what Rand is against, but I don't really uh, know what he's for. So I, I can't, I don't want to get into a debate with him, especially in absentia. Um, look, what we want is as much decision making capacity in the hands of the patients and the physicians and the nurses as you can possibly have, first of all. However, most people, including a lot of doctors, don't really understand how the healthcare system works. HSAs, for example, are fine for small items. A $1,000 HSA is a good idea. People will make decisions about whether they should go to the doctor for a cold or maybe wait and see if it doesn't go away by itself. The problem is the really big ticket items in medicine that are driving the cost are whether you should have an MRI, whether you should spend $150,000 on an oncological drug or $250,000. Those decisions are not made by patients uh, well because they're all an emotional extremist when their care gets that. Uh, expensive, So that is why I tell people, including our, 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 uh, our drug company uh, clients, we are all better off if you get rid of the fee-for-service system, have a lump sum for each patient per year, and then let the medical establishment live under that lump sum. Are there going to be some people who cheat? Yes, there are people who cheat under the current system. You'll get a health care system because it will pay doctors and hospitals to keep you healthy instead of hoping that you get, and need an MRI or end up in the ICU, which is where their revenue source is.
4: You know well uh, how much political capital Democrats expended on getting this law uh, through when they did. When you look at the Democratic Party today, how much cohesion is there? How much commitment is there to protecting this law that they spent so much energy, so much political capital on?
2: Well, look, look, let's just be
5: blunt about this, if I may. This was a mess. Um, This was done uh, not very well. Uh, There was a lot of uh, people who, a lot of academics who didn't really understand what the hell they were doing. The bill was essentially written by the insurance industry in the Senate. Uh, the politics of it was awful. Um, so I, I don't hold up Obamacare as the perfect way to fix health care, but it did do a couple of really important things, Some, one or two of which are preserved in, in the Trump Care proposal, as it will become known if it passes this way. One is it recognizes the pre existing conditions. Uh, should not be a reason to disqualify somebody. Now, there's some funny business they've done in this proposal, which is not good, but it's, they didn't throw the whole thing out. Uh, two is it lets the young kids stay on their – or young people up to 25 stay on their yeah. parents health insurance. That's very helpful, uh, and that was a good thing. But this could have been done. I favored a public option. I really truly believe that people ought to if you're really going to have options in in health insurance, signing up for Medicare at an early age ought to be one of them. Right.
0: I mean, in the little bit that I've read of it, and then folks were waiting to see the financial analysis of the Trump care or whatever, Speaker Ryan care, whatever you want to call it, is the basic idea of tax credits. How how valuable are tax credits to 50% of America that's basically financially flat on their back? They've got zero value don't
5: they well yeah the, now they say it's a refundable tax credit but the, you know if you're not paying any tax cuz you're not making exactly any money. Uh, and, and you know mitt romney used to complain that 47% of the people in america didn't pay taxes well that isn't true of course they pay a lot of taxes in medicare and social security taxes but a lot of them don't pay a lot of income taxes they don't make enough money to pay income tax a, a, a refundable tax credit is not going to be helpful particularly to people like that yeah
4: just lastly here, I'm, I'm curious, you were the what, the pioneer of the 50-state strategy. Looking forward here, when you look forward at the Democratic Party where it's headed. Yeah, good question. Uh, what, what, what states weren't part of that 50 states last yeah. time around, and how are you going to get them on, on board?
0: Yeah, in 40 seconds. Help us with the future <laughs> of the Democratic Party. <laughs> uh,
5: look, we, we need a complete and total reset. Uh, we obviously need to reinstitute a, a com- competition in all 50 states, but things have changed a lot in the eight years since I was chair. Um, and w- what we really need to do is have a strategy for getting young people to identify with our party. They all vote for us all the time, but they don't consider themselves Democrats because they don't like institutions. And I think we have got to well, figure out a way to, to bring them, and they're doing it on their own. We need to organize that, and that's going to be a uh, tough haul.
0: Dr. Dean, thank you so much for listening to us on Sirius and XM Channel 119. We'd love, we'd love to see you darken the door yes, for studios. Please. I need to check up anyway so we can kill two birds with one stone. Howard Dean is a Democrat. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gurra is at David Gurra. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.